0: InDefensive Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash Their monthly contributions ensure that InDefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? When the going gets tough, plants can't get up and move. After all, they are rooted into position. This means that often plants have to adapt to extreme growing conditions if they are to survive. My guest today studies what it takes for plants to adapt to conditions that other organisms simply can't. Specifically, we're talking about gypsum today, and joining us to talk about this is Dr. Sarah Palacio. Dr. Palacio is very interested in sort of the morphological, anatomical, and physiological ways that plants can adapt to living in soils that are really high in gypsum. As you may remember from a previous podcast episode on gypsum soils, they are full of calcium and sulfate, which means not every plant can do well there. In fact, it can be very toxic to most plant species, but some plants survive just fine. In fact, they thrive in these soils. This is a really cool frontier when it comes to botanical science, and you're even gonna learn how some plants are able to extract water from rock. You heard that correctly. And to figure out how that happens, stay tuned. So with that in mind, I don't wanna keep you from this discussion any longer. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Sarah Palacio. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Sarah Palacio, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's really great to have you here. So let's start off by telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do.
0: Right. Uh, So, well, I work in in Spain in a research institute and I work on plants. And all my interest in science is about learning how plants cope with the environment they live in. Because as you all know, they cannot walk away when (laughs) things are turn turn bad uh, so they have to stay there and cope with whatever is coming and and i find that fascinating so that's why i try to understand how they cope in the most difficult situations like for example now i'm studying in more detail and focusing my research on plants that live on gypsum which are very special soils that are not easy for most plants because they have lots of calcium and lots of sulfate and that's not good for them hmm. and they, they are very dry so it's not a nice place to live, but some plants do, and some do very well. <laughs> and I'm trying to learn how they do it and what mechanisms they found through evolution to to get that possibility. So it's uh, that's basically what I do currently in, in my job, my daily life. So it's good.
1: <laughs> that's wonderful. And yeah, I mean, your research is so interesting because plants, like you said, can't get up and move. And to think of all of the different ways that you can adapt, different lineages. You study a variety of plants. It's not like it's just one family that's doing this. But before we get into that, I mean, what really brought you to plants in the first place? Were you always interested in botany or is this something that kind of evolved over time as you, you know, throughout education or career?
0: No, actually I thought I tended to think that plants were very, very boring when I was a teenage student <laughs> Same. because I had a terribly boring teacher at at high school. And then I, I engaged into biology because I wanted to study animals and, and ecosystems um, so I only perceived plants as part of, a, of an ecosystem I, I just wasn't uh, very interested in them but then I had fantastic uh, amazing botany professors at, at, at the university and that opened my eyes and they were so passionate about botany that it really inspired me it was really really nice seeing them how how they love plants and they transmit that Hmm. And it was really nice. So I, I decided I want to study plants, and I only did. Actually, I ended up only doing all the uh, ecology subjects and all the plant subjects. I I didn't take any <laughs> zoology other than the, the Myers. Um, I didn't take any minor in, in zoology because I just wasn't. Fo- I was so focused on plants wow. that uh, yeah, it's interesting here. Yeah. How important
1: teachers are yeah yeah it's incredible i mean i was the same way i thought plants were boring but you never know those moments that are just going to flip a switch and then there's no turning back after that <laughs>
0: yeah absolutely
1: yeah and it sounds like it was all in from that point on but i mean obviously botany and ecology these are huge fields and and there's a lot of different uh-huh. ways you can go so what started getting you into like interested in sort of the adaptations and and ways plants adapt to the difficult situations you outlined a little bit ago
0: yeah i think that's always been uh, something that has fascinated me and um, actually from plans yeah the things that I, that I couldn't stop learning about <laughs> when I was doing my degree was about all these mechanisms that they had and they had developed through evolution and so when I I realized that I had ended up doing that because I, I didn't know this first time. I mean, it wasn't something that I decided, yes, I'm going to work on this. mechanism. I ended up focusing on the mechanisms of plants. And then I realized that this was actually the thing I had been longing to do since I decided huh. working on plants. So I did my PhD in functional ecology, which is actually a way of understanding the, the strategies, the ecological strategies of plants and uh, functional ecology is a very broad field and some approaches within it are related to the mechanisms of plants. And that's actually what I like most and what I develop most. But it, it's not the, the approach of, of, for example, my PhD supervisor. He follows a different approach. He's not so much interested in the mechanisms. Hmm. But I then I think um, doing my postdoc in, in Scotland with Pete Millard at now the James Haddon Institute, and he 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 he's an ecophysiologist and he was very interested in mechanisms, and and I think he inspired me that bit as, as well. So I don't know. We're a mix. We're a mix of a strange mix of all the influences of different people <laughs> that we encounter. and it's it's quite nice to see.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it's nice when it can kind of be outlined that way to show how this stuff develops over time and how these thoughts and research interests really develop over time. And it is it is also really interesting to kind of start combining these because there's the ecological realm of what allows plants and really the communities they comprise to exist in these harsh conditions. But then you can really drill into those fine-tuned mechanisms of, you know, what's going on with the roots, what's going on with, like, water relations, those sorts of things. And there's, you know, it it seems like... Oftentimes, people see specialization as sort of narrowing the focus, but it's like you kind of get to this bottleneck, and then it opens up a whole new set of doors to all of these possible explorations. So there's a lot of ways you can insert yourself into this sort of research.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I always have, um, as I've said, my PhD supervisor. He he follows a different approach, and he's always warning me not to get in a lot into the details and, and and lose the scale, lose the the scale of the of the ecological questions. Mm. You know? Sometimes. We get a lot into little questions that we need to address for our little mechanisms, and we forget about the big question. And he's right, so this is always a balance to do. No, I see we need to get into in depth in the different mechanisms to try to understand better what's happening. But at the same time, we cannot forget where are we coming from and what what was the real big question we were trying to address. Because otherwise, we won't make prog- we won't make progress. So yeah, this is always this funny balance.
1: Yeah. I enjoy sort of the functional ecology realm for that reason is it allows you to say, okay, what is it about the physiology of these plants? You know, an individual is affected by what mechanisms within its body is doing, but then that scales up to a population. Populations make communities and this is how you end up with ecology, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, the, the scale of functional ecology is the whole individual. So we work we work with roots, we work with leaves, we, we try to understand. So it's like when you go to the doctor and, and they only look at, one part of your body and you would like them to look you as a whole. So this this is more or less the same. We try to see what's happening at the whole individual level. um, So as to try to understand how it's functioning and how it interacts with the with the environment as a whole. So, yeah.
1: Wonderful. I like that approach. Yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's fascinating. And, and again, so many interesting questions can be asked and potentially answered. But when did gypsum really enter into the equation? Because, you know, again, people that ha- hear the word gypsum probably think of like building materials, drywall, that sort of stuff. But it is a really important substrate and plants are doing fascinating things on it. But then again, there's also few parts of the world, comparatively speaking, where you can truly study this stuff in a lot of detail.
0: Well, yeah, I, actually, that's, that's something that that's probably why we don't know much about gypsum Hmm. so gypsum is obviously a very important material worldwide and it's it's an important trade and the industry related to gypsum is well known everywhere we all use it (laughs) and then as for the plants we don't we don't often think about that and i for example i'm in the united states you do have quite a lot of gypsum and, and you have gypsum in the Mojave desert in the chihuahuan desert and it's it's surprising how little it's been studied so far in in Spain because half of the country is covered in gypsum. Oh wow. We've we've studied it quite a lot. Wow. And most many of the things we know about plants on gypsum and about plant ecology on gypsum has developed in in Spain, but we have gypsum in all five continents and it affects the livelihood of millions of people hmm. all nor- all the north of Africa. It's covered in gypsum and in the Middle East, 75% of the surface is covered by gypsum. So Somalia, for example, is all gypsum, basically 90% of the country. So if Somalians would have some money to do research, we would probably know much more about gypsum than we do now. And So the problem is that it's been, it accumulates in dry areas. So it's in drylands and unfortunately, uh, the countries that are on drylands, they don't have much money to to do research. So I think that's partly the reason and it's something we face when we decide to work on gypsum. Many editors, they don't understand the importance mm. of, of our contributions because they think this is something marginal, that it's not relevant. So everybody understands the, the, the importance of understanding serpentines and serpentine ecology because they are widespread. And even though maybe they, they cover less, I don't know how much they com- as they compare with gypsum, but I'm sure they don't affect the livelihood of as many people as gypsum does. But we all understand how important it is to know more about how plant life develops in these uh, typical soils. But for gypsum, because it's not in northern countries and in northern Europe, they don't have gypsum soils. They don't understand. And they see this as something really Hmm. not, not very relevant. So it's, it's been um, a matter of years and years of fighting and saying, hey, this is really important. And it's something we're trying to bring into light again and, and to keep making pressure. So we are working hard on this now. So as to put some ecosystems in the world so that the, the, the scientific community knows about them and hears about them and understand understand that it's it's important to know more what's happening there so and to, and to protect them. Because that's the problem since we don't know a lot about them we are not protecting them and we are exploring them and um, they are they are being mistreated worldwide so it's it's, it's, a, it's a shame and some areas they are being destroyed massively destroyed wow. because they are not perceived as, as useful right they are wastelands so they don't have trees and they don't serve for cropping and so it's it's a big it's a big problem but so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we have to. Lots of work ahead.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you know, it's it's good to hear these perspectives because you know, it's easy to kind of fall into that western perspective that we've done it all and kind of seen it all and we've got a good grasp of what's going on, but Yeah, I mean, if these are areas where, like you said, lack funding, lack interests, especially in the scientific community, they're just going to get overlooked. And when you think of it from sort of a biodiversity perspective, I mean, a lot of times these marginalized areas often harbor some really, really amazing species, a lot of unique species. But then, you know, from the human side of things, like you said, this is exploitation. These are areas that are long forgotten, lacking funds. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why putting attention onto this is really important.
0: Yeah, well we we will keep the fight up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean we will keep fighting for it and and these years we are gathering data so as to show Good. how important they are it, with a, with a global perspective. I mean just yeah. getting out of Spain and our little country and our little plants seeing what's out there in the world in, in gypsum soils around the world and and it's really fascinating.
1: Certainly. And so you kind of hinted at it in the beginning, uh, and obviously, if these are dry lands, we already understand that that's probably a challenge for a lot of plants. But what is it really about gypsum, overview-wise, that makes it so difficult that plants start evolving these really interesting adaptations to live there? Like, what are the constraints on plants?
0: Well, yeah, basically, there's lots of calcium. So gypsum is calcium sulfate with water. That's what gypsum is. It's a hydrated salt. So when I do outreach, I start by putting the chemical formula of gypsum and then a crystallographic network so that everybody sees that it has water in the crystals Hmm. and that it has lots of calcium and lots of sulfate. And then I explain that calcium is basically like WhatsApp for cells. So it's a a way of communication. So if we receive... um, 5000 whatsapp messages per day we're going to miss the important information and that is the same thing that happens to a cell to a plant cell if it grows in a medium with loads of calcium there's lots of calcium peaks and every peak it's uh, information wow. so it goes it goes mad and the metabolism doesn't work properly oh. because calcium is a signaling molecule so inside a cell plants have to keep calcium levels very low And something similar happens with sulfate. So this is basically what happens if a plant grows with lots of calcium and lots of sulfate in the soil, which is the case in in gypsum, um, they they can have problems with their metabolism. So they have to either block calcium out or learn how to cope with high levels of calcium, uh, which is what some gypsum specialists have learned Hmm. how to do that. And then um, there's... A scarcity of nutrients. So they are very nutrient poor, basically, because everything in the soil solution is saturated by calcium. So you, the miss and then you have to take into account that some of the soils we study have 90% over 90% gypsum. Wow. There's not much room left for anything else huh. to be in there. So this really, they are really nutrient-deprived. I mean, it's, it's very, very common that we take our soils to the analysis service and they say, hey, there is no phosphor at all. We, we couldn't, I mean, it's out. It's below the detection limit. Oh no phosphate. Wow. So they're really, really poor. And then they, they are dry mm. because otherwise we won't have gypsum. Yeah, That's right. the key of it. We, we need dry conditions. Otherwise, if it rains a lot, then the gypsum is washed away from the soil and we don't have a gypsum soil anymore. So we could have a gypsum outcrop, like in the Alps, we have lots of gypsum in the Alps, mm. but they don't develop gypsum soils with the, poten- with the potential to affect plants. And the same happens in Canada. There's lots of gypsum, huh. but there we don't have a gypsum vegetation. We have calcareous vegetation because simply we don't, they don't develop gypsum soils in, in the strict sense of it. Right. So,
1: I mean, it amazes mess. me to yeah. think of like the happenstance of geology and continental drift and like Hadley cells all kind of culminating to this perfect storm that for all intents and purposes is extremely hostile to life. And I think when people think of, I mean, myself included, you think of these harsh conditions, you picture plants sort of on the edge of existence, barely hanging on, looking kind of sad and flimsy. But, <sighs> you know, you get into some of this stuff, they're they're thriving. I mean, this is a, these are species that have truly evolved to either cope with it or... Um, you know, I, I guess we can have, talk about the debate of like, are they truly gypsophiles or just plants that do really well, you know what I mean? But it's happening and life thrives on these things. So this just begs the question of what is going on with these plants? And that's where a lot of your research comes in.
0: Yeah. Well, actually they, they do love, I mean, I can really tell that some of these plants do love gypsum (laughs) and I, I like showing the picture of, uh, I have a picture that I like a lot. It's, it's the ancient wall of, uh, Teruel. It's a town here. And the ancient interwell, there is no gypsum, but the wall was built with gypsum bricks. Hmm. And there we find these gypsum loving plants. Wow. So you can tell how much they love it and they find it. <laughs> and it's happened to me. Um, we have a tool to detect gypsum outcrops from satellite images. And it's happened to me to find a very tiny spot of what can be looking like gypsum. And it's surrounded by no gypsum at all in kilometers. But you get there and there you find the right plants. Wow. It's really amazing. How they do it. I, yeah. just, pff, I don't
1: know. <laughs> <laughs> Whole other lines of research there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. But
0: they do love it.
1: That's amazing. And so, you know, again, these are communities of plants. It's not like you get there and it's one type of asteraceae or one type of ketopodiaceae. I mean, these are there's there's various lineages here, which as soon as you start to hear that from an ecological perspective, you're like, each one's probably doing its adapting to this yeah. in its own way, correct?
0: Correct. That's right. And the mechanisms that they've found, as far as we know, are not always the same. Wow. So they, depending on their background uh, as a plant lineage and their chemical industry, <laughs> they develop different mechanisms to cope with the limitations that gypsum soils impose. Wow.
1: That's amazing. I love that, and and again, those moments when you're in the field, realizing that, and kind of putting the research, the literature together, but then seeing it, being immersed in it in the field, has gotta just make those moments so much more special.
0: Yeah, well, in the last in the last years, I've been well blessed with the ability to travel <laughs> around there's some outcrops in the world. So uh, thanks to different projects I've had, and so I've been able to know many to visit many different gypsum outcrops and it's really amazing because you can see how the gypsophilic flora is in around the world and and really opens opens your mind about how this can be happening and what are the different processes that might be taking place in different sites in different parts of the world it's, it's really nice it's really really nice so yeah it's fascinating
1: yeah especially across the globe i mean different things in different places let alone in the same place i mean really cool and it's really awesome to have that fortune to do that
0: i mean you can compare yeah visiting i mean for example the chihuahuan desert or i mean what we know from spain in in our gypsum communities particularly in the recent years and because they've been studied for a long time we know what happened 60 years ago and how those communities were and we know they were dominated by gypsum endemic plants Uh, but this is not the case today And the only thing that changed was cattle. So now we don't have cattle anymore. Whereas those days, there were lots of cattle there. Hmm. And we've been studying this in Moditon and we've seen that actually cattle, extensive grazing, favors our gypsum specialist plants. Wow. And then you go to the Chihuahuan Desert and you see all these gypsophilic communities. And I wonder how much they are there as a result also of a past influence of large herbivores. Hmm. You look at that, vegetation and it's full of cacti or i mean plants are either toxic or they have spikes Um, and they're really unfriendly (laughs) from from a herbivore perspective i mean and and even though now we don't see much cattle or much herbivores there it really made me think about how much that vegetation would have also responded to herbivore pressure and then you go to australia and the situation is completely different because there. Gypsum microbes are very, very recent, and yeah. they occur around inland lakes, in like saline lakes, and they seem to come more from halophytic lineages. So it's, it uh. seems to be quite a different origin. I mean, I don't know. This is all all the things <laughs> I'm currently thinking about. Sure. So, so as to show you how different, and, and we are looking forward to going to Namibia. We couldn't go there yet, but going to the Namib and visiting the oldest desert in the world with gypsum plants. I would really love to do that because that's, that would, I'm sure that's going to be a completely different perspective again. <laughs> so, all these different scenarios areas where they all have gypsum and they all have plants that are evolving on it, but you can see some differences. So, it's, yeah. it's really nice. Yeah. Wow. Not trying to integrate all this.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot to unpack there, but really interesting, too, because then you have these sort of, like you said, anachronisms of what was going on in the past. I mean, sometimes deep time past, not just human generation Mm -hmm. past, but you know when you're visiting these different places and your research is is vast in the sense that it covers a lot of different areas of the world but you, you know you have to go in with questions and ideas in mind so are there you know certain lineages of plants you like to focus on certain groups like maybe the herbaceous layer some woody stuff i mean how do you start as sort of a functional ecologist answering some of the questions that you have when you get to these various areas to look
0: yeah well i start focusing on perennial plants mm. So I always I always have to rely on on a local expert botanist uh, or, or more than one hmm. so I this wouldn't be possible without my colleagues uh, from all over the world that are helping us to to improve knowledge and they know the plants very well so I we first work on the plants and we try to put together a list of what they consider are endemic plants perennial plants and we we include the animals as well but we know that it's quite possible that we don't find them so that's why we focus on the perennials and I traditionally from my, my career I've been working mainly on on woody plants but obviously if you have to deal with herbaceous species uh, you also include them but all the plants that I try I, I focus on when we do our experiments so our focal species here from Spain they are all woody substraps little straps which are the gypsum queens, as i call them from here from spain (laughs) you know uh, straps so um yeah that that that's basically how we approach it
1: awesome yeah and that opens the door to again looking at all of the different ways i mean if you're just kind of binning it as this is a lifestyle but different plants fit this lifestyle how yeah Yeah.
0: And, and for the lineages so um, there are some lineages that are very, very important for plant life on gypsum and cariophyllas are crucial. Mm. Um, Asteraceae are also very, very important, particularly in, in America, in the Chihuahuan desert. And obviously, obviously brassicals mm. uh, are very, very important. And they follow a completely different way of coping with these limitations, at least when it comes uh, to iron toxicity, to calcium and sulfate toxicity, because they have their chemistry is well suited to uptake and to include, to assimilate that excess of sulfur because they produce glucosinolates and they produce secondary metabolites that are rich in sulfur. So they can incorporate them into their metabolism, their organic molecules. So all these gypsum endemic plants, they tend to have very high levels of calcium and sulfur and magnesium. And what we've seen as a mechanism, as a detoxifying mechanism, is that most lineages, what they do is they pack the excess molecules into vacuoles inside the cells. And this leads to gypsum crystal formation inside the cells. So we see beautiful rose, um, (laughs) desert desert roses, I think you call them as well, no? Beautiful crystals inside the cells of these plants. They are really amazingly beautiful. And they are pure gypsum. Others produce calcium oxalate, which is also widespread, a widespread mechanism to cope with excess calcium in soil. Uh, but these brassicacea they don't form crystals, they assimilate it. Hmm. And just today I came, I, I, I told you I was traveling and I, I was shipping, I went to the main town to collect some samples and ship them to the United States to my colleague Rebecca Drenovsky, oh, and nice. she works on glucosinolate metabolism and she's going to look at this uh, glucosinolate accumulation in some brassicacea from our gypsum soils. Wow. So it's a completely different way of dealing with this toxicity. Yeah. Uh, but it needs to be very efficient as well. Huh.
1: And and so, okay, there's like really two lines that kind of stuck out to me there. Is one like the glucosinolates to me seem like a nice anti herbivore. Like that can really benefit them beyond just being able to deal with it as, as, like you said, investing in compounds that this lineage creates anyway. But then the vacuole stuff, is that just sort of like, we can't stop taking it up, so we might as well just put it in sort of a waste bin, which is this vacuole. Is there any evidence that that's like anti-herbivore? Or is it just, again, a way of kind of dumping all the excess into one area that's not going to hurt the tissues?
0: Well, it's a very good question. And we don't know, actually, what we what we do know is that, at least in our area, communities along, sampled along grazing gradients, they tend to become richer in gypsum endemics as grazing increases. So as there is higher grazing, there are more gypsum endemics dominating the community. And then plants that grow in high grazing, they tend to accumulate more sulfur in their leaves. Mm -hmm. And this is not only due to a replacement in the species. So you could think, okay, They have more gypsum endemics, and she's told us that they tend to accumulate sulfur. So that makes sense that they have more species (laughs) species that are sulfur accumulating. But actually, what we've seen by measuring intra specific variability is that this component is quite important. So within the same species, we see an increase in the amount of sulfur that is accumulated in the leaves. So those populations have individuals that accumulate more sulfur in their leaves within the same species. So that, that's what shows us that it's likely also having an anti-herbivore role, this sulfur accumulation in the form of crystals, because in this case, we're mainly talking about non brassicaceae species. It's in these communities, we find very few brassicaceae in, in this particular area where we did this study. So it should be mainly related to the, produce, to the production of gypsum crystals. And well, actually, crystals have been they, they've they've been suggested to have also an anti-herbivore role. Yeah. But it's it's it's. We, we, I mean, it's all very new. Sure. We we did a, a clipping experiment and we didn't find any short-term effect. So we okay. thought we could try to mimic <laughs> uh, browsing, or and in just one year with a, I mean one clipping event didn't trigger any change in sulfur content or gypsum crystal formation. But we know that with a longer perspective. So mm. if we go to these grazing gradients that've been there for decades, we really see an effect in the populations, which, which
1: is nice. Wow. That's wild to think about because yeah, it's this question of like local adaptation to just, like you said, repeated, or is there some sort of plastic component that maybe it's not once, but a couple of seasons where it's heavy? But what's yeah. I mean, what's amazing is you do have these gradients of probably areas that are heavily grazed for a period of time and then removed versus ones that are kind of continually. And uh, yeah, just this idea of like queuing in on how this, again, these outside ecological perspectives going up from this physiological mechanism of hyperaccumulation to how the heck are large herbivores affecting this? I mean, that in and of itself, I mean, it's got to be kind of unexpected at moments. But then when you start putting the puzzle pieces together, you're like, okay, there's definitely something here.
0: Well, actually, our conclusion is that this atypical substrate flora should have evolved with herbivores. Mm. And this for our, for the, spanish gypsum endemics they seem to need it i mean not not overgrazing, obviously but moderate grazing favors them so and actually they don't become dominant so there is not an advantage of being a gypsophile unless there is someone eating you wow or eating your colleagues (laughs) your neighbors (laughs) i would say
1: preferably so
0: otherwise they they are not dominant so they there is only an advantage because that was a question I couldn't understand. Why would you become a gypsophile if it doesn't give you power over your neighbors? If gypsophiles are not dominant, which they are not currently hmm. in our communities, in our plant communities on gypsum, what's the point of right. being a gypsophile? And this study explained it to me like, okay, it, it, there is an advantage to it if there are animals eating your neighbors. Wow. So that you can get around with that.
1: Yeah, it just really highlights this issue of competition. I mean, even in the harshest conditions, going back to what you kind of said earlier, it's not like these things are just spindly little things, widely spaced, like they have neighbors. There's a lot of competition for space among plants and uh, you know, herbivores seem to push the balance.
0: (laughs) Yeah, you have to be able to cope with gypsum and then you have to be able to cope with disturbance on a stressful soil, which is, you know, grime, I mean, uh, disturbance and stress is not within the triangle. It's not considered to be an option for most plants. Right. Most plants cannot cope disturbance and stress that goes against the rules. But these plants have found their niche in there. Wow.
1: That's so cool. And I love that you just brought grime into this because, yeah, we're, we we spend a lot of time talking about ecological laws and rules, thinking that like, no, there's these are black and white issues. This can't be. But... Ecology is a messy area. Biology is a messy area. And these are these exceptions to the rules. They might not be terribly common or widespread in some areas, but in some, certain areas, they're definitely there and it's happening and you have to kind of struggle. And And what's cool is now your research is bringing all of this theory kind of to the forefront in this one angle going like, here's a challenge to this entire concept.
0: <laughs> well, yeah. And actually to the concept of plant evolution on a typical soils, we only look at the soil but maybe we can also we, we should also be looking at the disturbance because these open areas, and I'm thinking about serpentines and saline mm. soils, all these are typical soils. They are, have traditionally been open areas where herbivores go. They love open areas. <laughs> right. They like the forest to hide, but they like open areas to, to eat. Right. And so thinking about what the evolution of this um, environment should have been in the past, they, they certainly have been under the pressure of disturbance and it's it's very funny that we are not it's not yet incorporated into our vision of how we should manage these ecosystems or or what should we do with these plants and And that's something quite interesting that our recent research is bringing to light like maybe we should look at it in a different way or broader way
1: talking about you know, sort of the biases of like not paying attention to something just because an area is not, you know usable or or marketable for for economic gain. but, Yeah, just thinking about how much of our questions are formed by, well, this is what we saw growing up. This is what's familiar to me. This is how it's always been. But I mean, grazing regimes and like, especially megafauna, uh, you know, on this continent, we've lost so many, uh, you know, in other continents as well. We're not unique here in North America, but just this idea that at some point in time, they had to have had an impact on the evolution of these species and, and the com- composition and, and dynamics of these ecosystems are, are vastly different. And, you know, again, it's generational loss of this knowledge that was once there. Yeah. Pretty wild well to think about. Um, and so in, in the context of grazing, I mean, you also have this idea of dryness getting into there. So not only are they dealing with the pressures of toxic soils, I mean, toxic in the context of most plants herbivore pressure or lack thereof of a certain disturbance, now you have the fact that they're also in really dry areas, which super complicates things for plants.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it does. They are very dry. And so one thing that fascinated us is that many of these plants, particularly the shallow rooted ones, they were blossoming in (laughs) late spring, early summer. And they have very, I mean, very shallow, less less than a meter deep uh, roots. So we did um, a stable isotope analysis and we looked at the whole community and we wanted to see, because here our gypsum landscape is, it's covered in soft hills and the vegetation changes along the soft, the, the topography of these hills. So we wanted to see where, um, from where these different plant communities were taking water from. And okay, we found that those plants that have very deep roots, they were using uh, the water table, but then those plants with shallow roots, They were using very, what we call evaporated water. So it had a very funny isotopic signature. And we thought, because as I told you, there is water in in the crystalline structure of gypsum. We thought maybe they were using that water, crystalline water. And we investigated a bit and we we, we read that it was possible for that water to be released at relatively low temperatures, like around 40 degrees. Water from the gypsum molecules can be released. And then we, we also calculated and we saw that actually it's quite a lot of water. So it's 20% of the weight of gypsum is water. And huh. um, so now there are, there are projects now that are mining the water out of the gypsum in the Saharan desert to feed populations, to, to give drinking water to people that huh. live in the desert. So it's actually quite a, a lot of water. So you just have to heat the soil. Huh. You just have to heat gypsum. And these areas are heated by sun in in summer quite a lot, over 50, over 60 degrees, many times. So, okay. Uh, We then looked at the isotopes. So we thought, well, can we separate these two waters? So like the free water and the crystalline water. And we, we thought of a way of extracting them sequentially. So first we would extract the free water without heating the soil. And when that soil was dry at 30 degrees, we would then heat it up to 120 degrees so as to extract most of the remaining crystalline gypsum water. And then we looked at their of composition because they have to be very, very different. if We wanted to use them as to separate them uh, with our of methods. Right. And we saw they were, they were really, really very different. Ooh. So then we just went to the field, looked at the xylem sap of these plants and using statistical models, uh, we calculated how much of this water they were using. And some of these plants are using up to 90% of the, the water they, they drink in summer, 90% of it comes from gypsum crystals, it's not a lot. What? And this was, we, we did that in uh, like six years, seven years ago. And it was a big, it was a big thing for us. I mean, really, this was a new source of water for life. No one had ever thought about plants or any organism drinking minerals. And since there is gypsum in Mars. We were contacted by Ines because it was it was a bit of a revolution actually, and we were a bit worried actually because you never know. Right. This is an indirect measurement. I mean, you never know if you've just released something that is not real. Right. Um, but two years ago, they found some uh, cyanobacteria in the Atacama Desert that are actually drinking gypsum ah, water, and wow. and they they found a honeydried. So when gypsum gets dehydrated. It, it leads into honey dried. And they found how these little algae were drinking the gypsum, likely digesting it and, and leading to honey dried. And this this year, well, she's just sent it out for, for it's, it's currently under revision, but one of my PhD students, she's found that it's not only some specialist plants that do this. So her she studied 20 plants in, the, in our gypsum communities. All of the shallow rooted ones use gypsum crystalline water oh during my. summer. Um, grass species, and they don't have to be gypsum specialists. It's it's a widespread source of water for most plants. So actually why they are not very green. And (laughs) I think uh, this is because this water comes with lots of salts and lots of sulfate ions and calcium. So it's kind of toxic water. Mm. So it's there and they are using it, but it's their second chance. I mean, they only do it in summer. In spring, they use mostly rainwater and water in the soil, free water in the soil. But in summer, when they are really, when soil gets dry, they they get into this source of water. It's very important for the whole community. And it's nice to see the niche segregation because the plants that have deeper roots, they don't use this uh, crystalline water that much. They can rely on more available free soil water and they use it. Whereas those plants with shallow roots, the the, the soil is dry. They can only use this gypsum crystalline water and and they do it. All of them. It's very nice.
1: That's so remarkable. Drinking water from rocks. And yeah, it's so counter to think of you know the the shallow rooted zone of those dry soils has to be the worst place to possibly live if you can't do that. But the fact that it's even expanding beyond these gypsophiles, that this is a strategy a lot of plants. Well, I mean, relatively speaking, a lot of plants are undertaking. But then going beyond just the amazingness of this ecophysiological process that they've evolved over time. Here's a really harsh part of the world or harsh parts of the world that are dry. You said dead of summer. This is when this is happening and they're flourishing. They're green. They're, they're blooming. They're doing well during these hard conditions. Ecologically speaking, those have to be little oases for other life. I mean, even just from the shade that they're casting, but nectar resources, that sort of stuff. I mean, this really scales up beyond just how amazing (laughs) it is that plants are drinking water out of rocks.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's, it's. That's that's uh, Laura's conclusion in her paper. So this source of water is making possible these this highly biodiverse uh, communities. It's sustaining them. So otherwise, they would they would just be um, deep rooted plants in there, because what's feeding them during summer is this crystalline water. Right. So. It's- Whew. Very nice. that's amazing
1: congrats to all of you working on this for uh pushing this forward and uh investigating even deeper because i remember when the initial i, I think i got it from a nasa article like oh scientists find a way that life could exist on places like mars you're like what but uh <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> i love there those were, connections there were
0: many funny releases there i mean like growing tomatoes and, you know that was very really
1: funny yeah yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, pop science is going to do what it wants to do and you got to get clicks. But, you know, scaling back down to the level of what's going on at the roots. I mean, is this you you mentioned heat has to play a factor here, but, you know, is it that these rocks heat up and the water kind of precipitates out and then the plants use it or the plants doing something physiologically to unlock it? Are they growing into the matrix or something like that? How does it work out from that side of things?
0: well actually we don't know that's oh. that, that's all about lara's lara's phd so now nice. she's measuring ex-dates. i should be <laughs> that was i'm escaping <laughs> helping her um we're trying to see so we've, we've we've grown these plants in in writer boxes so these are like special pots and i i like when i go to primary school schools and i tell the students how would you study the roots of a plant if mm. you cannot see them So then I show them our containers with this little window where we can actually see the roots and they all love it. (laughs) And so Lara is studying how the the roots, uh, as they grow, they modify the pH of the soil. And Uh um, so to to get into this, we contacted some uh, crystallographers from Spain and they, they work at the... Instituto Andaluz de Ciencias de la Tierra. So that's the, the Andalusian Institute for Earth Sciences. Mm. They are world experts in, in gypsum crystallography. They've been studying the NICA uh, crystals and they have amazing studies on gypsum. And we collaborate with them. And I asked them, what do you think? Uh, because my view is that I think plants are pushing the solution of gypsum, that they are actually eating the gypsum, the gypsum, like like this algae has, they have been found to do, they digest, they dissolve in the, in the way that they destroy the gypsum and that releases water. Huh. Um, they they told me, they were more thinking about the thermodynamics of gypsum and thinking that maybe plants could change uh, the chemical environment in the gypsum soil so as to change the thermodynamic rules. So for example, if, if the plants are exudating certain compounds, they can change the rules. And that can lead to gypsum dehydration, so to the release of water. And these are the kind of things we're currently studying. So we want to know first if these roots are able to lower down the pH, the soil pH, so as to bring it to a point where the gypsum would dissolve, I mean, would be degraded. And we also want to analyze uh, all the other exudates they are producing, so as to see if they are organic acids or if they are alcohols, Mm. or molecules with the potential to to shift the chemical roots in that rhizosphere so that the gypsum can become dehydrated more easily and laura's looking at this uh, both in soils that have been sterilized uh, so they don't have any they've been sterilized but then we've added a a little juice of uh with bacteria so (laughs) an extract with bacteria What what we've removed are the um, the mycorrhiza oh, because okay. mycorrhiza we think are very very important for some of these plants. Actually, Helianthemum squamatum, which was our model plant so far, it's not she can't. I mean, it cannot grow without oh. um, mycorrhiza. It doesn't grow. It, it 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 dies after some months. And um, so that's one nice finding of her PhD that they actually need to have this mycorrhiza to become adults. Hmm. And then she's looking at the changes in the pH with a very nice system that we can actually see. We can actually. R- record the changes in the pH as the root grows and we see that they actually change quite a lot the pH they it, they, they make it more acid as, as the root is growing and the next step is pushing these plants into dry conditions and to see if the exudates that they are producing that they are releasing if, the, if they change or not so that's going to be the last experiment of her EEC but yes, yeah, so now she's currently extracting <laughs> Exudates
1: dates in the lab. awesome. So we'll
0: uh, to analyze
1: them. Well, we'll have to let her know so that she's uh, got to prepare to do another podcast interview about that when uh, the data's come in and analyzed. <laughs>
0: I'll let her know.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Oh my gosh. And like, uh, g- kind of going back to what you had said, I mean, you and I were very similar in the fact that it, zoology was kind of the focus because we thought plants were boring and helpless because they can't get up and move. And I think your career has shown they are not helpless at all i mean they're drinking toxic water for crying out loud i mean these are plants that are fighting every inch of the way that is so amazing
0: yeah no they are great and so that that's what i i like finishing my outreach talks with that trying to share with this with my audience the, the importance of these ecosystems how how valuable they are and how important it is that we recognize that and that we keep them safe Yeah, now, which we currently are not doing actually
1: yeah I mean, yeah, thinking of the perfect storm of the evolutionary history that led to most of these organisms, but let alone, you know, even just looking diversity, going, this is amazing by itself, but then all of the amazing adaptations we can wrap our heads around to try to understand how plants can make a living in these conditions. And this extends so much beyond even gypsum itself. I mean, think of areas that have been ignored because of this or not thinking about it in terms of the context of... What's going on below the soil? I mean, that in and of itself, like you said to the students, you can't put on goggles and dive under the wa- uh, soil like you can mm-hmm. under the water and study this stuff. But how much of that has just gone to the wayside? Because it is difficult unless you have the right technology to study it. I mean, you're, you're, you're opening so many new avenues of, of things to pay attention to at the very least. And then thinking of all the amazing things that come on board from the scaling up from ecophysiology all the way up to the ecological relationships these plants are forming.
0: Yeah, it's it's nice and yeah I don't know I'm I'm having lots of fun that's all I can say that's good <laughs> and I'm meeting lots of very nice people yeah yeah uh, all around the world so i really I feel really fortunate to to be able to be doing this it's, it's really nice yeah <laughs> it
1: would suck if you're doing all these amazing things and you're like I'm bored and I don't like what I'm doing i <laughs>
0: <laughs> not sure you do good. <laughs>
1: Now, and, and again, thinking, you know, the collaborative aspects of what it takes for you to do your work, but then thinking of the ways these organisms are interacting with like mycorrhizae or the pollinators in this world. I mean, there's a lot of corollaries there that make for kind of an interesting dynamic to think about what it takes to study this stuff, but also what it takes on the flip side to live in these areas. I mean, I, I would I would assume the mycorrhizal interactions or any microbial interactions that's going on underneath the soil is in and of itself an entire realm in desperate need of deeper exploration.
0: Actually, it is. Yeah, what, we, what we've seen uh, from studying the mycorrhizal communities in this vegetation, gypsum vegetation, is um, basically that the gypsum endemics don't seem to rely that much in general on mycorrhizal. So the non-endemics are the ones that have a present- higher percentage of colonization, um, probably because they are stress-tolerant plants and mm-hmm. they have to cope with this very stressful soil and they have the help of their fungi friends. And whereas gypsum specialists, we think they use mycorrhizal, but they also have, uh, seem to be more able to uptake the the scarce nutrients that are Mm. present in the soils by other means, like by means of the root phenology or by being very, it's like they are, uh, we we describe it as being very permeable. So they, they, they uptake whatever it is in the soil because they don't, I mean, um, we've seen that non-specialists they tend to block calcium and sulfur at the root, at the fine roots. So they have lots of them at the fine root, but they block it there, so as it doesn't get into uh, above ground parts, and which would be toxic for the plants. But gypsum endemics are okay. Doesn't matter. Just go, go, go. They, they they uptake anything that is in there. It's fine for them. Doesn't matter. So that they seem to be more able to uptake nutrients because they don't block so much um but and then they have to cope with this excess of right. calcium and sulfate but that that's what we now as we see it now that they don't seem to rely that much on on microalgae in general generally i mean helianthema squamatum these pieces i've told you sure. cannot survive without it. it's it's absolutely dependent on them uh but in general Gypsum gypsum endemics, they have less percentage of mycorrhizal colonization in the roots than the non-endemics. And we think it's because of this, that they have these other nutritional strategies that enable them to be more efficient in uptaking the nutrients in these very poor soils. Yeah. So, but. We continued it. That's yeah. all I can say. <laughs> right, right.
1: Early days kind of thing. It's just like, I'm sure everywhere you look with every lineage, you're like, oh, well, that's different. <laughs> that needs some explanation. But it is cool to start to see these patterns and think of it in the context of evolution and, and what drives a specialist versus a tolerator. And I mean, just what you outlined there, and, and you can elaborate more if you do know, if not cool, more research to do. But it, it almost seems like maybe if you're an endemic, it's more about getting those nutrients and then, okay, we just have to deal with it. Like what pushes them down those different paths of just being a tolerator that can hang out with mutualists versus uh, an endemic that's figured out how to just take it all in and get rid of the bad and keep the good. I mean, just from, yeah, a- an evolutionary perspective that in and of itself opens up a ton of new questions.
0: Yes. But but then because we, I mean, we knew that they were doing these different strategies in terms of nutrient uptake, but then... We couldn't see the endemics growing better on gypsum than out of gypsum. We, we, mm. we pushed them to grow off gypsum, but they weren't. They weren't doing better on gypsum, and and that's when we didn't understand what the hell was meaning. What, why, why? What's the point in being a gypsum endemic? Right. And and only when we analyzed the disturbance and the grazing, we became to understand what it could serve for. I mean, it's not only being more efficient in uptaking the nutrients and all this. This only makes sense if there is disturbance and someone's eating your neighbors.
1: I love it. Uh, Ecology—it is such an amazing field. I don't know why more people are yeah. not ecologists. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah. my father is a physicist, and when I explain to him how much, um, how yeah, how many statistic analysis I have to <laughs> make, to, <laughs> make my, to, to run to make my analysis, he's like. We only do statistics to test the efficiency of the I mean the accuracy (laughs) of the of the device. We we don't actually have to measure the process because these are precise sciences. Ecology is not not precise. It's not an exact science at all.
1: And that's why we have physics envy. Oh, uh, that's an amazing thing, and and so in terms of the future, it sounds like there's so many different avenues and so many questions that you still have in mind and want to test. I mean, what's kind of just over the horizon? Obviously, your whole career ahead of you. You've got a lot of places to go and do, and people to meet and collaborate with. But what's what's kind of immediate interest of yours?
0: Well, immediately, I want to finish all the things that I have I have open uh, <laughs> within. I mean, within this, uh, I'm coordinating an, an an European project now, mm. and we've we've been stopped for more than a year due to the, to the pandemic. Mm. Um, but this is a very I, I love this project. It's about doing um expeditions all around the world in, in different gypsum areas and analyzing different aspects of gypsum ecology and gypsum plant ecology uh, from different aspects. So from from evolution, from floristics and plant community structure, global change threats and conservation. So I want to finish with with all this and and, and think about it, have the time to think about (laughs) it. Um, We're learning so much. We're gathering lots of data. um, We have an amazing database of of plant composition Mm. from gypsum soils and also from plants that don't grow on gypsum so as to be able to trace within the tree of life for plants how they change their chemical composition when when they become specialists to gypsum or when they don't. So we want to look at this kind of... And we are compiling a checklist, the first checklist for gypsum plants of the world. So far, it has more than 1,200 species in there. And we want to make it, uh, we have very, very important parts of the world missing, like Uh China or Mongolia, where simply because they don't know how gypsum soils are, uh, botanists, so there is not a communication between botanists and geologists. Mm -hmm. So the botanists don't distinguish the gypsum. And even though they have loads of gypsum, there is only one species described for the whole China as loving gypsum. I don't believe that. (laughs) Sorry, it must be be much more. So, and that shows how little we know in different parts of the world. Um, So compiling this checklist is, is a very, very important first step so as to show the world how important these ecosystems are. And obviously, we want to look at the conservation threats and conservation status of most of these, pl- these plants and for most of them we simply don't know they have one or two populations and simply don't know how they are so they it's really scary in a way and then um yeah i want to finish all these global studies at least the ones that i planned initially right. i'm sure this this data will bring up many more interesting studies but so first i want to see how, how gypsum um, endemicity evolved as well within the tree of life so put this thousand several hundred species on on the tree of life and see how where, where, what lineages are there from and how how that uh, relates to the origin the geological origin of the gypsum outcrops of the different parts of the world mm. so as to see how these different floras evolved. And, and so I try to understand the biogeography of gypsum as a whole. That's very important. I wow, think we yeah. have a big knowledge gap there. Wow. So these are all little things I want <laughs> to finish in the next few years.
1: Wonderful. I mean, even that is in and of itself a monumental task, but a really fascinating one. I mean, I really look forward to seeing sort of those, those phylogenies, those lineages, just to see, like, is there a pattern? Is there not? I mean, oh, I can imagine how exciting when that data starts churning out that really is. But with that in mind, people listening, obviously getting fired up about this, want to learn more. Where do you recommend they go to learn more about your work, people in your lab and, and your collaborators as well?
0: Hmm. Well, we have the Jeep World website, and uh, it's true, we don't have a very great website from our group. <laughs> I'm Quite all bit, right. I'm, yeah, I'm a bit lazy about that. I'm sorry. Yeah, um, you
1: got other things. But I guess
0: if they, if they, there is the JeepNet as well. There's a, a network for uh, people interested in studying gypsum ecosystems. The website hasn't been very active, and I'm, I'm the one after it. <laughs> I assume my, my, yes, my laziness. We're not uh, here but, to judge. <laughs> <laughs> Jibworld.com, um, I think it is. And uh, if, they, if they type Jibnet with Y, G-Y-F-P-N-E-T, uh, that's Jibnet. Um, so both websites are uh, good places to see who's working on this around the world and, and what we're doing. Um, so, yeah, what Wonderful. keeps us busy? <laughs>
1: I will put up links to save people the trouble of having to find those. But again, thank you so much for talking to us about your research. It is amazing. I think the gypsum areas of the world have you as a friend and a defender, but also uh, a sleuth. You are uncovering so many fascinating things with you and your colleagues and your your, your PhD students. And I I just wish you all the best. So keep it up. And most importantly, keep in touch. Let us know when you got new updates because you are welcome back at any time to talk about them.
0: Okay. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for giving us the opportunity to sharing our our fun uh, with you and with your audience. It's It's been great being well, here. Thank you.
1: Wonderful. Well, hang in there, stay healthy, and uh, safe travels when things open back up.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Crossed, right?
1: <laughs> Cheers. All right. Incredible stuff. As if my love and respect and admiration for plants could not be any stronger. Work by Dr. Sarah Palacio and her colleagues. Just makes it all that more amazing to take a look at what plants are doing out there, how they're adapting to extreme edaphic conditions. I thank Dr. Palacio for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. And as always, all of the relevant links are contained in the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplantscom podcast. If you are enjoying conversations like that, and more importantly, if you want to make sure that they can keep coming out for free each and every week, please consider supporting this podcast over at patreon.com slash Patreon is the best way to make sure this show has a future. And it's not all just give over there. You're getting kickbacks as well, including access to multiple mini bonus episodes each and every month. You can also support the show by picking up my book, In Defense of Plants and Exploration into the Wonder of Plants. There's links in the show notes, but you can find it wherever books are sold online. Once again, that's In Defense of Plants and Exploration into the Wonder of Plants by Mango Publishing. I thank everyone that's picked up a copy so far. I hope you're enjoying it. Finally, you can also get merch over at teespring.com stores slash plants. It's customizable and a portion of every purchase is being donated to places like the Nature Conservancy, the Rainforest Trust, and the Biodiversity Heritage Library. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and you tell your friends about this podcast because word of mouth is still the best way to get more people listening. But in the meantime, stay healthy, have fun, be good to each other, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.